So, uh, last week, took a little bit of a vacation week. You know, it's kind of funny how that week between Christmas and New Year's works. Like, am I the only one who has no idea what day it is when you're on that week between Christmas and New Year's? Even this year, when both days kind of fell on the weekends, you know, it's just like impossible to kind of know uh, where you were at. We were constantly kind of back and forth between Oklahoma. We had uh, family stuff and then some stuff come up here. We, we, I think we made about five trips back and forth in a three-week stretch. Uh, and so we've kept the gas industry in business the last few weeks here. But I uh, popped in last week to watch just a little bit of the, the service and uh, uh, noticed, you know, Stefan preached and, and did a great job. Uh, but I noticed, too, that he took a cheap shot at me. And, um, you know, the, the thing that you have to understand is they teach you that in Bible college. You want to score quick points, you take a pot shot at the senior pastor. I'm not like that. I've never done that, you know. And, and um, that's just, but um, um, I'll, I'll go to confess later. Don't worry. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> No, we're, we're glad, uh, glad to have him uh, being able to preach for us, and I, I hope you guys enjoy, you know, getting to hear from the other staff as they kind of rotate through and preach every once in a while. It's nice for me to be able to take a week away and, and uh, spend time with family and friends. Uh, but today I'm excited as we, we jump into a brand new year, 2024. I'm, I'm curious, I asked this question at 8 o'clock, who says 2024? Who says 2024? Does anybody else say 2024? Thank you for being right. I appreciate that. Um, at, some, at some point, it starts to sound clunky to say 2024. Like, we didn't say 1999, you know, a few years ago. But, but um, it's weird to think we are a quarter of the way through a century. Did I just make some of you feel older? Like, we're a quarter of the way through this century almost. It's, it's funny how fast time flies by, but we're grateful that you're here with us on this first Sunday of this year, uh, we're going to start this year off with uh, a, a brand new series that we're going to talk about here in just a moment. As we get ready to do that, though, i got a question for you. What's something that brings you happiness? Something that brings you joy? And I, I'm not, you know, I heard, heard an answer over here, which is a good one. I'm, I'm not talking just necessarily about the little things that make us happy. You know, we all have those little things that make us happy, and those are great. But the things that bring you the kind of joy that uh, nothing can take away from you. You know, maybe it is grandkids or kids. I, I talk a lot about my kids. Uh, in fact, I've been informed by a certain member of my family who shall remain nameless that I'm no longer allowed to talk about Titus from the stage <laughs> because, and I quote, he's got a reputation now. Um, so I'm going to talk about Titus real quick. Um, but Titus, my five-year-old, you know, I, you hear all of his exploits all the time. You see the, the stuff on Facebook all the time. But Titus is actually like the sweetest kid. Normally, it's right after he's done terrorizing everything that he turns on the sweet and the charm. Like, his new thing is, Dad, I just really need to give you a hug. That's normally after he's gotten in trouble. Or like last night, for example, I'm down in the basement going over my stuff for today like I do every Saturday night. At 10.30, I hear him coming down the stairs. Why aren't you asleep? Because I needed to give you a kiss. I said, your mom caught you, didn't she? You're still awake, and you're in trouble, and you're coming to butter it up. Yeah, I know how you, you are. But he's a kid who loves to just sit 
and cuddle and, and, and sit on your lap. No matter what he's doing, he, he, he just brings joy with what he does. Amelie started her first basketball game last night. I love watching her try things because she's fearless. And, and she doesn't have any worries of making a mistake. She just goes for it. Elsie, my oldest, uh, is brings me so much joy because of, of her just commitment. When she decides she wants to do something, she's all in. She decided this year she wants to read the Bible this year, in, in, in a year. She's 11, 6th grade. We messed up and got her on the wrong plan. She's doing the chronological reading. Those of you who are doing that, where are you at right now? You're in Job. And she's already in Job, a week into this. And she's like, I don't really like this. I'm like, it's okay, just keep reading it. It gets better. You know, she's like, what, why, why was he so angry? I'm like, why do you think he was so angry? I mean, look at what's happening to him, right? I mean, I love seeing that those kids bring me so much joy. What is it for you? What brings you joy? Maybe it's family. Maybe it's friends. Maybe it's, maybe it's, it's your hobbies or your business or what you do. It's, it's having enjoyable parts of life that you can just immerse yourself into. Maybe for you it's sports. Maybe sports bring you joy. Maybe you just really enjoy a group of people that you've never met, that will never know your name, that happen to wear a uniform that you like, dictating your moods every week. Maybe that's you for sports. Maybe you're one of these that says, you know what, it's not been the most, uh, the, the best year, it's been a frustrating year, but you know what, we've still got Mahomes and Kelsey and Big Red, and so we're going to be just fine. And today's a JV game, it doesn't matter if we win or lose. Maybe that's you, right? What brings you joy? Now, let me, let me follow that question up with another question, because maybe what brings you joy is the Sunday school answer, and, and you said, well, Jesus brings me joy. So let me ask you a question. If you are a follower of Jesus, what about him brings you joy? What about following him brings you joy? If you're taking notes, I want you to write something down there. And if you're, if you're not, type it in your phone, or maybe you come back to this later. You don't have to have an answer right this second. But come back to something, because I want you to answer that question. What about following Jesus makes you happy? We're starting this new series today called A Call to Cruciformity. Uh, for the next eight weeks, we're going to dive deep into the book of Philippians. Something that you may not really know about me, and, and this is something you'll learn because this is the first year I've started as the lead pastor here, is that once a year at least, I like to go through an entire book of the Bible from the stage. We, we try to pick good topics to talk about, stuff that's relevant, stuff that's important, and we're going to come back. We've got some good ones coming up in the, the, the next few months. We've got one on prayer coming up later this, this winter. Uh, we've got one after Easter on some big, heavy, messy topics that we're going to dive into that I want to encourage you to be here for that. But every so often, I just like to open the book of the Bible and just walk through it. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to spend eight weeks going through this short letter to the Philippians. And I want to give you an encouragement and a challenge as we do this. Maybe you're already on a Bible reading plan for this year. That's great. Can I add something to that? Every week during this series, will you stop and read Philippians one time? Just read it once a week. It's four pages long in most Bibles. Four chapters. It's very short. You can probably read it in 10 minutes. Just sit and read through it. And the reason I want you to do that is we're going to talk about a section of it each week, but as you read through it, you'll get a familiarity that's going to help you with what we're talking about here. But we're calling this series, though, a call to cruciformity, and you may look at that going, I don't even know what that word means. It's a fairly new word that was coined a few years ago by a scholar who was studying through this, 
and decided he needed something to describe what Philippians is really all about. Cruciformity, it means to take on the form of the uh, crucified one. Maybe an easier way to say it is, is cruciformity is to look like Jesus on the cross. It's to look like Jesus in all of his humility, in all of his sacrifice, and in all of his just giving. That's kind of where Paul is at with this. This short letter packs so much into it. And it's going to show us what it means to look like that. To look as humble as as Jesus did. To look and give as much as he gave. Not to say that we can be either of those, but we can strive for those. Quick context here on Philippians. I'm not going to get too deep into this. But Philippians is one of the 12 letters that Paul writes in the New Testament. Most of the letters that he writes are written to churches in certain places. Some of them are written to people, but most of them are written to, to a specific church, a specific group of people. This is one written to the church in a town called Philippi. Philippi is in modern-day Greece, right on the Aegean Sea. At this point in time, however, Philippi was an entirely very pro-Roman town. Rome ran it, Rome controlled it. The people there were very Roman. There were Jewish people there, yes, but by and large it was a Roman town. Paul visits there in Acts chapter 16 on one of his missionary journeys. And when he gets there, because this town doesn't have a, a, a heavily Jewish population, he's not able to go to the synagogue. Often when Paul went to a new town, the first place he went was the synagogue to pray. There's not one here. So instead, in Acts 16, it says, Paul did what the Philippians did. If he wanted to worship and pray, he went to the riverside. He goes there and and prays and he worships and he meets some women there who were doing the same thing. One of them is a woman named Lydia who he converts to Christianity. He baptizes her and she becomes a key leader in the Philippian church. We'll actually see her name throughout the letter. But Paul, like he does so often, winds up in prison He gets arrested for preaching the gospel, and while he's there, he decides, you know what, I'll just convert the jailers that are here, and so uh, they they pray. They spread the gospel everywhere that they go. A few years later, Paul writes this letter to the Philippian church, and something that's interesting about this letter is a lot of Paul's letters that he writes, he would visit a church, start a church, whatever he might have done, he would write a letter at a later time often correcting the behavior that had happened since he left them. Things had happened, they'd gotten off track, maybe they were, they were doing the wrong thing, or they were preaching the wrong thing, or believing the wrong thing. So he would write a letter of rebuke or a letter of correction. Philippians is not one of those. It's a letter of encouragement. It's a letter of love. Think of it like this. One of these days, uh, Brad Fangman will probably write me a letter, write Crossroads a letter, correcting all the things that we've done wrong since he's you know, handed off the reins and moved on. Or maybe he's just going to do one like Philippians and he'll write a letter that's just gushing about all the things we're doing right. I don't know. We'll find out here in a few years, but it's going to be fun, right? No, Paul writes this letter not of rebuke or admonishment. This is a letter of love and it's a letter of joy. Let's just jump right in. We're going to walk through the text as we go through this series. We'll stop and look at some things uh, that we want to talk about as we do. Philippians chapter 1 starts like this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus... To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you are familiar at all with Paul's letters, 
you, you know this is pretty common. If you're not familiar with Paul's letters, you're not familiar with the Bible that much, this is how most letters in this day and time started. The person who wrote them would have put their name right there at the beginning, like we only put our name at the end. They would put their name at the beginning, say who's writing it. Sometimes Paul often likes to give a title, and a lot of times his title is the word servants, which is the Greek word doulos. It can also be translated as slave. Paul's saying, I am nothing. I am simply following Jesus Christ. But I want to point out two words specifically, and they're words Paul uses in almost all of his letters in this opening greeting. He says, grace and peace. Grace to you and peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are two words that are very easy to gloss right past when you're reading the Bible, especially when you get through the New Testament and you start seeing these in every book. Those are two words that are very important, though. And they're two words that kind of play out throughout the course of this entire letter. The first one I'm going to look at is the word peace. Peace when Paul writes about this. We've talked about peace kind of in the past few weeks. I'm not going to get onto this too much, but in the Christmas series we were talking about peace, peace with others, peace with God. But peace, as we talked about before, it's not the removal of conflict. Peace instead is, it's what? It's, it's restoration, right? It's restoring a relationship with God. In this culture, again, this was a very heavily Roman place, and so Rome preached the Pax Romana. That was their, their, their mantra, the peace of Rome, meaning if you just you know, do what you're supposed to do, you don't try to upset the apple cart, you don't try to disrupt what's going on, we'll leave you alone and you'll have peace. And so Paul will intentionally use the word peace coming back towards people in Rome, because he's trying to show them where true peace comes from, through restoration with God. But then he also mentions grace. Grace is what gives us our salvation. Grace is what led Jesus to the cross and his blood that cleanses us. But it is through grace that we find peace. We don't get peace without grace. And through grace, we are transformed into the image of Jesus. That's what this letter hits on. Grace saves us, yes, but then it transforms us after that. We're going to talk more about that as we go kind of throughout this morning. We don't achieve peace without grace, and through grace, there is peace. This, again, this is a very standard introduction, but I didn't want to miss that. I want you to hold on to that. But as we look through the rest of this text, we're covering this first section today, kind of an introduction into Philippians. I just want to highlight two things that I think Paul is really talking about, two main lessons that I think are important for us as a church, you individually, also us collectively, that are going to be major themes all the way throughout Philippians. Here's the first one. The first theme is that, is that gospel partnership is essential. Now, this may not be on your note sheet. We'll leave it up here for just a second extra. Um, but gospel partnership is essential. Often we like to think that we can just do things on our own, but we really need each other. We need the whole group here. And Paul is writing this, mind you, from prison. He's setting in chains as he writes this. He's by himself, but yet he knows in spirit he is connected to everybody in Philippi. Starting in verse 3, here's what he says. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all are making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Just look at what he's saying here. Paul, writing these words, I thank God every time I think of you. He's grateful for the church. That's the first thing that, that comes to his mind. For all the church, 
not just for certain people, but for the whole church. Now, does that mean that everybody in the Philippian church got along and they didn't come and complain because this was wrong or that was wrong or this person or that person? Of course not. They're probably no different than we are. But yet Paul finds gratitude for all of them, even if they might have disagreements, even if they might have something that frustrates them. Let me ask you a question. Are you grateful for your church? And I'm not saying that so that you can come and tell me or tell Brad or tell us on staff, we're so grateful. That's not what I'm asking for. Are you grateful for the church, for Crossroads, for the church across this area, for the church across the world? Are you grateful for the people in your church, even those that might frustrate you, even those you might not always get along with? Are you grateful for that? I've been a part of churches where people just, I mean, they couldn't even be in the room together. I'm like, we're supposed to be one, we're supposed to be a body, we're supposed to be a partnership, but there was just constant animosity. Let me, let me follow that up with another question, and this is going to get a little bit deeper into it. How often do you give thanks for the church and for others in the church? And, and when I ask you that, I'm going to challenge you with something. If you don't, start doing it and make a list. And I don't just mean people in this room. Or people in this church. Yes, I hope you're thankful for certain people here because people here have helped you. But what about people who have been in the church in the past? People that have helped get you to the point where you are today. I, I was challenged to do that. And I actually sat down this week and started making a list of, of the people who got me to where I am today. And, and I, I've got my family, yes, and that's, that's the top of the list for me. But aside from my family... Aside from my grandparents and my, my parents and my aunts and my uncles, my cousins and all that that have helped me, I was thinking all the way back to when I was talking about Titus earlier, his age, sitting in Sunday school with, with uh, this couple named Wesley and Janet Barger, Mr. and Mrs. Barger. My mom likes to point out that at the time I called them Mr. and Mrs. Hamburger. Um, <laughs> but uh, seeing them, you know, as a five-year-old, and not, I don't remember what they taught me, but they taught me something that, that stuck with me at the time. I, I saw them uh, a few weeks ago. I was, was back in town, or I guess it was a, a few months ago back in town for uh, uh, one of my, my mom's aunts had passed away, and we were back in town for the, the funeral, and they came to the visitation, sat and talked to me for quite a while. Think about this, this couple named Irvin and Dixie Beeler that I had also as Sunday school teachers when I was little and how they've kept up with me over the, the years, and, and uh, their daughters are a little bit older than me, but that connection that we've had, that they, they did something in my life at that young age that kept me interested. Think about the, the, the people who led our children's church back then, or my first youth pastor, Mark Lynn, who, who taught me so much about just life, not even necessarily about Jesus, but just about life. And then my, my, my high school youth pastor, Phil McGeechee, who came into my life at a very pivotal time, right around my, my junior year of high school, sophomore to junior year of high school, when you're hitting that age where there's a lot of confusion going on. And he came in at just the right time, and how I've been able to track with him. Mark, my, my first youth pastor, just took over a, a lead pastorship at a church I was a part of for a long time. Phil just stepped out of the one he's at. He's in his 60s now and is moving into a role, I think, where he's going to be pastoring other pastors, something he's going to be great at. And I think about how he's going to impact lives there like he did with mine. And I think about uh, guys like the, the, the Baser family who pastored our church I grew up in. And it's a, a generational pastor family. The, the youngest, Josh, is one of my best friends, has been my whole life, uh, still pastoring today. Think about a guy named Greg Tiffany that, that uh, you know, was my campus pastor when I was at OU. 
First time I was away from my family, first time I was able to make decisions and not have to worry about what my mom or my dad thought because they weren't going to know. And Greg was the rock I needed. They kept me grounded. They kept me pointed in the right direction. They, they kept me focused when there was a whole world and campus around me wanting to get my attention for other things. I think about a man named Leon Weiss that was kind of Miami's pastor, my hometown. He was our Brad Fogo. He was the one that if you were hurting, you were sick, you wanted him to come call you. You wanted him to come visit you. I, I got to actually do a funeral with Leon a few weeks ago uh, when Jennifer's grandma passed away. Uh, Leon and I did it together and just working alongside of him, watching up close what I'd watched for years. Is, I'm so grateful to God for him and what he's meant not to me, just me, but my, my mom and my family and, and so many thousands and thousands and thousands of people. I'm grateful for guys who became mentors as I got into ministry. The two guys, Rick Penny and Steve Gross, when I was in Phoenix, that still check in on me from time to time. Uh, I'm grateful for a guy named Eddie Lowen, who's a pastor in, in Springfield, Illinois. One of my mentors that I've still turned to in the past few months after everything's happened here. There's been nights I've called him at 11 o'clock on a Saturday night when we both have to get up and preach the next morning. And he's taken my call every time. I'm grateful for that. I thank God for those men. And even getting here, the Brads, Tracy, the rest of the staff, so many of you all, grateful for you all helping to get me to where I'm at, not just in my role as a pastor, but in my role as a dad, as a husband, as a follower. Who are you thankful for? Who makes your list? I want to encourage you and challenge you. Start making that list. Who has got you to where you are today? who has helped you through everything life has thrown your way. Find joy in that. Here's the thing you need to understand. When you're full of joy, when you find those things that bring you joy, that'll fill you with gratitude. And when you're full of gratitude, you don't let the other stuff bother you. You don't let the, the, the muck and the mire of the world get you down. Gratitude will carry you through so much more. Joy will fuel that. And when it comes to Paul, his joy and his gratitude comes from realizing what the church means to him. Realizing what this Philippian church means to him. He uses a word here when he talks about partnership. He uses the word in Greek, koinonia. Maybe you're familiar with this word koinonia. Maybe not. If you're not, we've got the definition up here. Koinonia is a gospel-centered fellowship focused on mission. Now, sometimes we think of koinonia as just fellowship. Or we think of koinonia as friendship, but it's more than that. It's deeper than that. It's gospel-centered, and it's mission-focused. C.S. Lewis talked about friendship, and he defined friendship as seeing someone and going, oh, you too, and finding a commonality. That's friendship, right? You find something that you can have in common with, with another person. It doesn't have to be everything. Sometimes it's one thing. I've, I've talked to you about my neighbor I have. We have one thing in common. We both like the Chiefs. That's about it. Everything else could, could not possibly be anywhere close to the same thing. But we're friends. And we're connecting over that. And I'm hoping to use that. Use that connection however I possibly can. But koinonia is deeper than that. Gospel partnership is different than just a friendship. It's deeper. Because where a friendship shares a common interest, koinonia goes further than that. It realizes we share a common savior that we have common struggles, common conflict. It's about more than just being friends. It's about coming together to get mission. Uh, I uh, 
think about it like this with a movie. If you've seen movies like Star Wars, you've got these people who come together from all different walks of life. You've got Han Solo and Luke Skywalker and Leia coming from all these different, different directions, but yet they bond together. What? Because they have a mission to share. And through that mission, their relationship grows deeper and their bonds get tighter. The church is the same way. I don't know where you all come from. I don't know what your background is. I don't know, know what brought you here today or what brought you here for the first time. But you come here, you find commonality, and you know what our mission is, to go make disciples, to, to preach the gospel, to, to bring life to others and bring it to the full, to seek and save the lost, to, to serve others. We focus on our mission, and we do that together. Here's the second main theme we see through this opening uh, section of, of Philippians, is that God's work in you is ongoing. God's work in you is ongoing. I'm thinking about this because, uh, you know, again, we had a funeral for Jennifer's grandma a couple, uh, three weeks ago or so, right before Christmas, 92 years old, uh, you know, and, and made it home. My grandma's 94. We thought we were losing her a few days ago. Uh, we thought that was it. She's kicked back up, and now I'm even more convinced she's going to outlive me at 94 years old. Um, but in her case, 94 years old, she's lived her whole life for God. The work is still going on. God's still working on her. But here's the thing you need to understand. When God starts something in you, it doesn't stop. So in verse 6 here of chapter 1, he says, I'm sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you're all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense of, and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. What's he saying here? He's saying what God started, God will continue and God will complete. What's he not saying, though? He's not saying he's going to complete this necessarily in the time that you want it to. Sometimes we get tired of waiting on God for something, or sometimes we wonder when our day is going to come that God's going to call us home. No, he's going to complete it, but it's going to be on his time frame. Uh, a few years ago, this was, I think, back before Elsie was born even, uh, Jennifer and I were in our first house, and like a lot of people, it was a starter house. And we were able to buy a house when we were first married, because it was that cheap, and you can probably guess why it was that cheap. <laughs> Needed some things done. It was a little dated. And, and so I decided, I was teaching high school at the time, I decided, hey, to save money, I'm going to take my spring break and remodel our bathroom and our, our master bedroom. That was my spring break project. And I finished it in just under four and a half years. Um, <laughs> and thank you. Thank you. I'm still very proud of that four and a half years, by the way. Um, there might have been stretches where I kind of forgot that it was even there. I'll be honest with you. Um, but rest assured, my wife has never once brought that up to me. Never once brought that up to me that it took me that long to finish a week-long project. Um, let's just say I learned a lot in that process. Some of you understand that. The one thing I learned is I'm not going to do any more remodeling projects ever. Okay, That's the number one thing I learned through all of that. But how many times do we start something that we don't finish? Maybe it's a project. Maybe it is a project around, around the house. You've started working on something and you've just never gotten back to it. 
Or maybe you, you started a new hobby. I'm, I'm bad at this. I'll start a new hobby. I'll get really into it. And then like a week later, I kind of forget that I ever started it. Like you just almost like your attention goes somewhere else and it just doesn't stick with you. But let's get a little more serious. How many times do we do this with a relationship? I, I'm probably bad at this too. You kind of start something with somebody and then you kind of just, your attention goes to somebody else or to someone else or something else. And you kind of leave that person hanging. No, what Paul's writing here is that with God and you, that's not the case. What he started, he will continue and he will complete. The completion comes the day he calls us home. Psalm 73, it says, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you'll take me into glory. I think about that again, just looking back at, at the life of, of Jennifer's grandma and my grandma and, and all these who, who uh, you know, have gone before us or, or may be about to go before us. And I look at those two especially because we know where her grandma is. I know where my grandma is going to be. And if you've given your life to God, if you've given your heart to him, if you've accepted him as your savior, you've been baptized, you've, you've made him the Lord of your life, then no matter how chaotic or crazy or or questionable or difficult life is, you know what's waiting for you at the end of it. You know the promise that's waiting for you, that he's going to call you home to heaven, that that final breath here is followed by your first breath there. But in the meantime, while you're still here, there's still work to be done. There's still transformation to be done in your life, in your heart, in your mind, in your soul. Paul says in Romans 12, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, he says, you will see what is, what is able to test and approve God's, God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. But just that line, don't be transformed, or don't, don't conform to the world, be transformed. That, that's God. God transforming your mind, God working in your heart and in your soul. Yes, his amazing grace saves us from our sin, but his grace also transforms us. The same grace that leads us to the gospel and leads us to redemption is the same grace that makes us look a little bit more like Jesus every day as we walk with him. That's called sanctification. Letting the Spirit come into your life and letting the Spirit overtake your life and form you to look like him. Now, we have another phrase that we call that when it comes to the church in a more practical manner. We call it taking your next step. Whatever that may be, Brad's going to give announcements here in a little bit, and one of those he's going to talk about is joining a small group. We've got small group signups going on right now. That's a great way to take it. If, if you're by yourself, that's a great way to get involved with other people. Here in a few weeks, we'll start our next signups, which are for our, our, our service teams, our ministry teams. Maybe for you, that's what comes next. That's the next step of sanctification is serving somewhere in the church or Serving in your community or in the schools in the name of Jesus in a way that, that helps bring honor and glory to his name. Maybe for you, your next step is actually taking a bigger step in leading a group, leading a small group, leading a ministry team. Or maybe, maybe it's just inviting people to come to church with you. Inviting people to come over and watch a, a Chiefs game or a, a basketball game or something that you can connect with them and talk to them about Jesus with. Spiritual growth leads to sanctification, and sanctification leads to sharing the gospel. But you need to understand there's more to this than just going out and talking to people about Jesus. It's about bringing people to what we call the partnership here. Partnering with others, I'm going to say this, it's valuable not just for the church, not just for our mission, but it's important for you too. It's valuable for you too. Because one thing that we need to understand about our world is you can't go about it alone. Uh, I've, I've 
done this before because I, I can kind of fly solo. I, I don't have to have a lot of people around me. I can be introverted at times and, and like that. But I can't confuse that with, with what I'm created for. I, I heard a phrase a, a long time ago that stuck with me. A, a, a lone runner can run fast. Or, or running alone, can, you, you can run fast, but running together, you can run far. And I think about friendship like this and partnership like this and community like this. It's kind of like a savings account. You don't necessarily know you need it until you need it. And if you're not pouring into it now, the day that you do need it, you're not going to have it. And it's not just for you. Maybe you're what somebody else needs. You being involved with somebody else is what they need at a specific moment in time. You need those people who stick with you when things get difficult, who are there with you when things get hard. And that's what the church is. We share common Savior, yes, but we share common difficulties. We share common conflicts. We're all going to deal with loss. We're all going to deal with hurt. We're all going to deal with a diagnosis. We're all going to deal with things that we don't want to deal with. So let's deal with it together. And let's be there for one another. That's what Paul is grateful for with the Philippian church. They've partnered not just in sharing the gospel, but in sharing each other's burdens as well too. And Paul, who is, again is sitting in prison, knows he's not alone that they're there with him too. Well, Paul ends this section with a prayer. And Paul does this so often. He, he prays for the people that he's writing to. After giving thanks to them, he prays for them another time. And I just want to kind of read this prayer over you all today because as I read this prayer that Paul wrote for the Philippian church, I feel like I could pray the same thing for you all. So I'm going to read this over you all as, as we get ready to wrap things up here today too. Starting in verse 9, he says, It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and you may uh, be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul is going to unpack so much in this short little letter for us. But the number one thing we need to understand is that the gospel changes people. And when we are together we see that. Changes people in love. You move from giving less love to giving more love. You, you, you move from an, an inward-focused self-love to an outward-focused focused selfless love. It changes people in their wisdom. We, we move from this idea of, of, of not knowing a lot to knowing more. And it's not just philosophical or theological wisdom. It's practical it's logical wisdom and knowledge that you gain as well, too. The gospel changes people in joy. We see this joy that Paul will write in a later letter that says surpasses all understanding. And that's the big theme throughout Philippians. Fourteen times in this short letter, Paul talks about joy. For perspective, that's twice as much as he mentions it in the book of Romans. It's four times as long. And Romans might be the most important letter that's ever been written. It's three times as much as he talks about in 1 Corinthians. It's all about a church dealing with major issues that so many churches do. So what's our 2024 going to look like? I hope for you that, that it's a year of realizing what Christ has done for you in your life. And that brings you joy. I hope for you it's a year of commitment to the church, to Christ. Not to me, not to any other person on this staff. To the church. To Jesus. And that you make this a priority every week. I know we've got a million things that go on. I know things pull us on the weekends. Make this a commitment. Get into a small group. Make that a commitment. 
Step up. Whatever you did last year, let's step up this year. Let's find joy in Jesus and all the things that he's done for us, and let's spread that joy everywhere that we go. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful. We're so thankful for your son. We're so thankful for the the grace that he gave us and the grace that he continues to give us by transforming us. God, I pray today over this church, first off with my gratitude for this church and all the people in it, for my love for the church and all the people in it. But God, I'm also just thankful, thankful for for everybody here. And God, I pray as we, we move into this new year that we would renew in our minds our commitment to follow your mission for us, to go make disciples, to love people, to serve people, to shine your light everywhere that we go, to make you famous in all that we do. God, I pray that 24 would be a year of revival across our area. God, your kingdom would, would, would spread across all of Kansas City and, and from here out to all corners of the world. And God, I pray, I pray that we would be right in the middle of it. God, I'm so thankful for you and for your church. We pray today in Jesus' name. Good morning. We are at that moment in time when we're going to be uh, spending some time reflecting and celebrating the Lord's Supper. And I want to kind of direct your thoughts, and I'll read a couple of verses here in just a moment. But first, let me just say that one of the things that you notice as you live life uh, and as you build relationships with others is that personalities vary from person to person. And specifically, one of the things I'm thinking of is in regards to some people are wired in such a way that they're real succinct, they get right to the point, what they say may be somewhat abbreviated, but it'll be accurate. Uh, And then you have other people, on the other hand, who take a little longer to say what they're going to say um, they use more words, but you have a, you feel like afterwards you have a fuller understanding, you know, because they gave you more background or whatever. Uh, one of the things Colette and I discovered 40-some years ago when we first got married, we were in Bible college, and we took several, um, at least several of our classes um, we took together, and we discovered that that was one of the differences that we had. She is always a get to the point, you know, you have the answer, just put it out there, don't throw out any uh, extra words. And so the funny thing was that whenever we were in a class that the professor had uh, like objective kind of answers, true and false, fill in the blank, multiple choice, you know, those kind of tests, she always scored higher than me. She, She always edged me out. But then there were the other classes where the professors primarily used essays for their final exams and all, and they'd give a question and they'd say, give a page answer to this and explain it, or a page and a half or whatever. And I always scored higher than her, you know, on those kind of tests. And we've been reminded of that many times over the last four decades uh, in our married life that that's just part of the way we're wired differently. 
Well, the thing that I discover as I spend time in God's word is that those same kind of personality differences existed among some of the writers, uh, especially in the New Testament, the apostles. Peter, for example, he was very succinct. Peter would get right to the point, and in view of what we're doing right now during our time of communion, Peter would say something like this, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. The first sentence of that has everything to do with our communion time. And it says this, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Right to the point. Christ died for sins once for all, righteous for the unrighteous, to what end? To bring you to God. There, it's said, and it's true. Paul, on the other hand, Paul kind of elaborates. He kind of builds a word picture of the before and after. Listen to what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. He says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. You know, he's kind of building a before and an after, you know, kind of like those weight loss commercials and all where they show before and after pictures. That's kind of what he's doing. It's a word picture here. He says, You were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants of promise. You were without hope and you were without God. But then he says this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. He took more words, more space on a page to say what he was saying, but you kind of walk away with, Wow, that's right. What a contrast from the way I used to be and the way I am now in Christ. Both ways of stating it are true and accurate. One fleshes it out a little more. The other gets right to the heart of the matter real quickly. Well, today, based on your personality type, take and cling to whichever benefits you in appreciating even more what it is that Jesus did. The fact that you are no longer outside of God, you are no longer distanced from him because of your sin, but now you're close to him. Now you're not a stranger and a foreigner to the the covenants of promise and excluded from citizenship, you know, in his family. But now you're close in proximity. And it's not because you're so good, it's because of the blood of Christ. That's what made it all possible. At this time, we're going to be taking communion, eating the bread, drinking the cup, and remembering what made it possible for us to go from what we once were to what we now are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for uh, the blessing the rich blessing that that we can reflect on and we know we should reflect on over and over and over just to to, uh, 
be able to be in awe of how much you truly do love us and the length that you were willing to go to to save us. And while we take this bread and we drink from the cup, Lord, refresh our memory anew about that love and the price you were willing to pay. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.